0: Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life, you know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He
1: will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
3: Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. I'm so thrilled to have Alexi Ashmyers on the podcast today. She is a badass attorney with Sanctuary for Families, the co-chair of the New York State Anti-Trafficking Coalition, and a founding member of New Yorkers for the Equality model, which you'll learn about on this episode. Bills to decriminalize prostitution are popping up across the country, but Alexi and other advocates believe that there is a better solution to actually support the people in the sex trade. This was a really interesting discussion because there's a lot of misinformation about this topic. I learned a lot from Alexi that I didn't know, and it certainly made me feel more invested in this debate and how we move forward to better protect people and make sure that we're not opening up loopholes for exploitation. So I hope you'll share what you've heard after listening and check out our Instagram page for more resources. Alexi, thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited to have you on the pod.
4: Thank you for having me.
3: Yeah. I wanna I wanna jump into your work, but I always like to start with people and kind of rewind because I find that we're always having conversations when someone's in the middle of a, a huge initiative or, or some great big accomplishment. And I'm I'm always curious how you got here. And I like to ask everyone what you were like as a kid and give you flashback to yourself around you know 8 or 10 were you were you a tiny social justice
4: warrior at that age already I was so i'd say that human rights issues really come by me honestly my grandparents are holocaust survivors so mm. that was a topic that was in my house from as early as I could talk, mm. um, I always knew their story. I was always proud of their story. They came and spoke in my classrooms. We went and saw them speak. And so, yeah, when I was probably ten, I played Anne Frank or I read Anne Frank passages at the opening of the Anne Frank exhibit in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is where I grew up. And so, yeah, human rights abuses were just something that I was always on my radar. I was also very argumentative. And everyone always said they knew I would be a lawyer. And so I it, I also, it's so funny, I'll go back sometimes and find high school essays I wrote uh, or like, you know, personal essays for applications to things. And I can't believe how true to myself I still am. And it's almost embarrassing. Like I'm just kind <laughs> of a cliche of myself. That's
3: sort of amazing though. My, my dad many times a year likes to say to me, I just can't believe you didn't become a lawyer. And I'm like, I take that as a compliment, sir.
4: I know. I think people (laughs) sometimes mean it in a backwards compliment maybe.
3: But I think when you really can be researched and and also passionate enough to defend whether or not the defense is popular or the subject matter is fun right, is a great quality.
4: Yeah, Yeah. I think
3: it's pretty cool. What was growing up in Albuquerque like? I, I ask because I God, maybe 10 years ago, I got to be out there for five weeks. I was in Albuquerque and Santa Fe working on a movie mm-hmm. and it was amazing, yeah. but I didn't really live there and I'm just
4: curious. I probably didn't appreciate it as much as I should have, but mm-hmm. no one ever does when you're in it. I love to visit. there. There's no bluer sky or cleaner air or more beautiful landscapes, mm-hmm. but also it was really culturally rich. I went to a high school that was incredibly diverse while also to this day, being the best education I got of all the schools I went to, I wish my kids could go there. But I, I really love New Mexico, and I feel it—a um, deep sense of connection to that culture. Mm, that's awesome.
3: Yeah, I spent a lot of time just marveling at that sky.
4: Yeah, the sky is beautiful. We grew up in the out in the middle of nowhere between Santa Fe and Albuquerque, and so like weekend activities were dirt biking and hiking mm-hmm. and looking for pottery shards and you know, as kids do.
3: That's so cool. I've yeah. always been sort of, I have that feeling of romantic nostalgia, I guess you could say, because yeah. of Georgia O'Keeffe oh, visiting totally. her property and visiting the yeah. museum in Santa Fe. And, it's amazing. Oh my God. I just think
4: like. Yeah. My sister got married there last year.
3: Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. Wow. So when you were little, you know, you mentioned reading Anne Frank's diary. What what other things were you reading as a kid that you think may have shaped this in you?
4: They were probably all Holocaust books. It was all Night and Number of the Stars mm. and all of those. Yeah. And Nancy Drew, of course. Nancy Drew's a classic. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I was always into really serious things as a kid. My favorite show was Murphy Brown, and all my oh, yeah. parents' friends thought that that was weird, but Funny, I, I
4: loved it too. Oh my
3: God. Wasn't it the best? <laughs> yeah. She was she was, and is my my icon of icons.
4: But I was also a nerd and went deep. Like we went to Rome on a family trip. And so then I read The Agony and The Ecstasy at also probably 10 years old, which was wow. like my mom kept telling me, you don't have to finish that. But
3: yeah, I wanted to. But when you're a good student, you start a book and <laughs> yeah, you finish it. Yeah. I totally get that. And when you were little and diving into all of that subject matter and – you know, mostly serious with a side of Nancy Drew. Yeah. Did you think about becoming a lawyer or did you have other ideas of what you wanted to be when you grew up?
4: Um, No, I do think I thought I would be a lawyer after like real childhood fantasies of astronaut and firefighter Mm -hmm. and stuff.
3: Cool. Yeah. So you mentioned your family. And when I was doing some research, I learned that your mom is a social worker Mm -hmm. and an activist. And... I'm curious what growing up with a parent who works in a space like that teaches you and what you think you learned from her.
4: Yeah, my mom is really incredible. I mean, it, it's because of her, her the her it's her parents who were the Holocaust survivors mm-hmm. and it's and it was through her lens and filter really that I learned about it. So, it was the way in which she chose to pass that legacy on to her children mm-hmm. and the way in which she showed us what was important. She also then started a nonprofit where she writes curriculum to movies that teach cross-cultural understanding and uses film as a way to teach children and reach children on so many different levels. Mm. So I watched that as I grew up and watched her start this from an idea she had one day that she really turned into something huge. And then this doesn't, quite fit in in the same realm but another thing that my family did when when I was 8 is we adopted my brother from Russia. He was 5 and we again I like went full in and learned everything I could about Russia and Siberia where he was from and wrote a whole report on it and and that at such a young age just broadened my world to know that there was so much more out there than what you just would learn in a classroom. Mm. so my parents gave us a really rich childhood in that sense
3: that's amazing what was it like having at eight years old having a sibling show up who wasn't a baby you know who was already five
4: it was actually really exciting I didn't have to deal with like why is the baby crying I just got to have a playmate immediately I was so proud of him we went to the same school and I would walk down the hall and check on him every a couple times a day and he spoke Russian, and people would come to me and say, like, Tolia is saying this in Russian. What does it mean? And I would translate. And I just – it was fun. It was immediately fun. He's the best. That's And so cool. now my sister, brother, and I all transplanted to New York and live within two blocks of each other.
3: No, so you guys get to see each other all the time.
4: Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Until we are too overbearing and overwhelm him and he disappears <laughs> and is like, back off. <laughs>
3: but, his big sisters yeah. get on his nerves. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. My, my cousin, I grew up with my three cousins who are like my siblings and Jenna's the oldest. And there were times where she'd look at me and the boys and be like, get away from me. And we'd go, okay, we've done it. We've pushed her over the (laughs) edge. We gotta go. Yeah. We're going to the backyard. Yeah. It was really, really fun. So you, you go through your childhood, uh, in New Mexico and then you went west for Occidental College, right? Mm-hmm. That's so cool. I grew up in Pasadena, oh, you so did. I was like,
5: Occidental. Oh, I love yeah. it.
3: It's so great. We did We did one huge production of a musical that I worked on in high school, and we got to do it at the Occidental oh, nice. College Theater, and it was the biggest deal
4: for yes. us. Yes. I know. Yeah. It's the set of so many movies, too. It's the most beautiful campus. It's
3: so beautiful. How did you decide you wanted to go there?
4: There was actually a weird pipeline between my high school and Oxy. I think there were like 13 people from my graduating class going who went there oh. and both really small schools. So it was kind of nice. And also you just visit it and, and want to be there. Yeah. Also, Obama went there.
3: Casual. You're <laughs> Pretty like, cool. Yeah. You're like, I
4: could do this. got to talk to him about that once.
3: <laughs> so cool. Yeah. And what did you study there?
4: politics. Okay. And I thought I wanted to work in local politics, so I went to the city attorney's office after graduating and worked there, but I was in the family violence unit and learned mm. about you, you know the intersection between domestic violence and family violence and child abuse and I was also doing a lot of work in LAUSD and and gang prevention through different programs we created. And so that really then cemented that I wanted to go to law school.
3: What do you think that was looking at, as you said, all the intersections of violence and how it affects families and communities? What do you feel like illuminated for you?
4: I think seeing people's vulnerabilities and and wanting to use whatever tools I could to help change it. When I see the state of things so many times and talk to people about how depressed they are. And I at least feel like I'm doing something. I don't know if I'm making a difference, but I'm at least doing something and in activity would just feel too depressing.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. The thing that motivates me a lot is thinking no one of us is going to be able to fix it. But if we're living in service to the solution, yeah, then we're doing something right. So while at Occidental, you were working in the city office. Yeah.
4: And, and then mm-hmm. after law school for a few years and then went through law school. Can I ask you a question
3: before we get yeah. into law school? Yeah. What do you actually, because I'm sure some people are listening to you talk about what you were seeing, but I'm curious if you can explain to listeners and honestly to me as well, what you were doing when you were working there. What, what is your day in and day
4: out? So the unit I was in was actually really unique, and it was a crime prevention unit, Hmm. which at a prosecutor's office is amazing because so much of what prosecutors do is after a crime happens. So we worked with LAUSD and with local precincts, and we had different presentations. One was called No Secrets, and it was for children about how to prevent sexual abuse and That was with a retired LAPD officer, and it was a curriculum that we had written, and another one was a truancy prevention program. So we went in and really educated about how truancy at school down the line leads to gang involvement and how to really keep kids out of gangs. So that was largely my day going around to different schools. And then we would host conferences to learn what other jurisdictions were doing and educate them about our programs. You know, there were things that as a non-lawyer I couldn't do, like write, there's something called a U visa that victims and survivors of domestic violence can get if they show that they've complied with law enforcement. And so I would help like with the initial process of that, but couldn't actually write the U visa application.
3: And what do they get when they get a U visa? What does that mean?
4: It's a, it's a visa that allows them to stay here. Oh, okay. Yeah.
3: Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And so, was it realizing that there were certain barriers to your work by that, that yeah, you faced? Yeah, just that not I could do
4: more, or I wanted to do more.
3: And so, then how did law school happen?
4: So I just went down the street from where I, from where I was working, where I was living, and kind of plowed through law school in two years. I spent a summer in the Hague studying at the International Criminal Courts and all the tribunals and learning about war crimes, and I really loved that and wanted sort of a job in that area, but what really, when hearing about war crimes, it was always the women and children's stories that really Mm -hmm. got to me, which somehow led me to trafficking. And so then I interned at my final internship, was at the Smalley Mom Foundation. And everyone else in my law school was so much more traditional. They were at firms. Mm -hmm. I felt a little bit like the imposter syndrome working at a nonprofit, but it felt right. And I, and I didn't want to, you know, push like a square hole and whatever the saying is. I just (laughs) didn't, I didn't fit at a firm. It's not, I knew I didn't want to go that route. So I really loved working at the Somali Mom Foundation. And when you're an intern, you do a lot of research and a lot of reading. And what I was learning about was how much trafficking actually occurs here Mm -hmm. and that it was really, it's really important to also to work abroad, but that if, while I was looking for my next step in New York, there was so much to be done right here and Mm -hmm. that I wanted to be part of that.
3: I think it's so interesting that we hear about these global issues, whether it's sex trafficking or period poverty or inhibitors to education access, and we assume they happen everywhere else. Mm -hmm. And then you start looking at the numbers and you realize it's literally happening all around us Mm -hmm. and that we've probably seen it. And how do you begin to help people make sense of that through the work? How do you educate people about what's happening in their community?
4: Yeah, I think there's a lot more awareness of human trafficking as a domestic issue now than there was even five years ago. But I just I mean, I talk about it everywhere I can at, every, at I'm asked about it so mm. um, at, at any dinner party, any social gathering, on social media. Just talk about it and spread the word, but also correct people's misconceptions that sex trafficking happens in Southeast Asia and in Eastern Europe and not here mm-hmm. and what it what it means, because I think a lot of people think that sex trafficking means you have to cross borders, you have to be kidnapped. You know, it looks like the movie Taken when in mm-hmm. reality it's so prevalent and domestic sex trafficking looks really, really different than that.
3: Can you tell us what it does look like?
4: Well, there's there's different kinds. What I saw in my work as a prosecutor of human trafficking cases is that communities tend to traffic their own communities. So, for American-born exploiters and pimps, they traffic the girls right out of their their high school, out of the corner store. They know them through their cousin or through a friend. They meet them on social media and they prey upon them in different ways they use different techniques but more common than than what you see in movies is like the protector romeo pimp who uses seduction and and more subtle coercive tactics to exploit the person that they are preying upon And pimps really intentionally recruit people when they're at their most vulnerable, when they're young, when they're homeless, addicted, living in poverty. They primarily target women and girls of color, people in the LGBTQ community, youth in foster care. We work really closely with Covenant House here in New York, and the director of the Human Trafficking Initiative there talks about how pimps wait outside Covenant House. They put ads out. If you live at Covenant House and want to make money, Contact me. Oh, my God. So they really prey upon those vulnerabilities.
3: And I think that the point you're making about the sort of protector or even romantic coercion is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Because we do often see these relationships or, or or these situations represented in ways that are, you know, hyper-realized for entertainment. And they're represented as though they're this like you said, someone's being kidnapped or abused, and it usually doesn't start that way. Mm-hmm. You know, they start in these smaller sort of microaggressions and microactions of violence against women, and then they yeah. snowball. And by the time a woman is has been trafficked and is being abused, she's been in this system for a really long yeah. time. And I'm curious, what would you tell people are some of the ways that it begins? Because I don't think a lot of people understand how it starts
4: how the actual exploitation starts. Yeah,
3: like um, if there's an example of someone whose story perhaps you've yeah. heard that
4: might um, might explain it. Sometimes it starts with with a real romantic seduction and I'm your boyfriend and we're going to have a great life together and we're going to live in this apartment but we just need a little bit of money to do it and help us out and I'll only ask you to do this once and you're doing this for us and I love you and I'm so sorry you have to do this, but I need you to, Mm. you know, my guy's going to pick you up and you need to go with him and do what he says and we'll get money for it and and you'll never have to do it again. And then other ways it starts is that they do prey on someone who's incredibly vulnerable and Mm. who's in absolute survival mode and needs money to survive and this is the only way to get it. And the common denominator in all of the cases of trafficking is vulnerability. And one thing that I think really gets ignored in this conversation is that you can be exploited at any age it can happen an 18th birthday doesn't change you from a a victim to someone who's in it consensually right what happens on an 18th birthday that that all of a sudden makes you not vulnerable to exploitation which that sort of leads me to what I'm working on now should we go there yeah sure I'd love it so there's a huge campaign in New York. It's also happening in Washington, DC, and it's coming up nationally to decriminalize the sex trade. Mm-hmm. And the language on this issue is really misleading and important to note because a lot of people are asked, and, and this is coming up in the presidential campaign a lot with candidates, are you do you support decriminalization of the sex trade?
2: Mm.
4: Now your knee-jerk reaction is yes, women should never and I say women, but actually it's there are boys in the sex trade and LGBTQ women, but survivors and victims should never be arrested for what they're doing. So mm. your reaction is to say you decriminalize the sex trade. But what's really misleading is what that actually means to decriminalize the sex trade. And that includes and what these bills include are legalizing or decriminalizing sex buying and pimping. The bill in New York that was introduced strips any penalties away from brothel keeping, from sex tourism, oh and from pimping someone who's over 18 years old. That makes my stomach drop. Yeah. And it's being pushed as progressive and feminist and empowering. Mm-mm. And there's a huge misinformation campaign about what it what it means.
3: Well, and I think a huge just a huge error in portrayal and perception because, yes, there are some people out there advocating. There are some adults. There's a a woman who I actually got to speak with a couple months ago who is a sex worker Mm -hmm. and who is like, this is my job and I choose this. And, you know, she likes her life. Right. But she's a very rare person in an industry. I mean, we we were looking at stats and, and we were saying earlier that it's, so upsetting how hard it is to find stats. Yeah. How underreported these issues are, but but one of the statistics that we found is that 92.2% of women in the sex trade report being subjected to physical violence, including being raped, shot, strangled, burned, beaten, stabbed or punched. Yeah. So those are not women who should be punished. Nor should the small percentage of of women who are involved in the sex trade who are there by choice and who like their life be punished. But people who do that to 92.2% of women, men who buy women and children, men who sell women and children as though they are commodities, should not escape legal punishment. Right. How do we as a constituency change that? How do we say— don't criminalize workers and victims, but criminalize perpetrators and victimizers. What, right. What's our option so, there?
4: F- so, f- what everyone in our movement on both sides of the table agree on is that the women who are bought and sold in the sex trade should never be criminalized. So, right now, in all fifty states, the the legal framework is criminalization. The people in prostitution are arrested. The sex buyers are arrested. So we're moving to change that. And in practice, many of the states have already enacted that. In Seattle, Washington, women aren't the, uh, I keep saying women, but
1: um, women the and pe- sex
4: workers yeah, aren't arrested for prostitution. In New York, NYPD has really stopped arresting the people in prostitution. So where we differ is on the issue of sex buyers. And you just read, and on exploiters, but I'll get there. What you, you just read that statistic about the violence that happens in the sex trade. And again, many people probably think that this happens at the hands of exploiters. That is at the hands of the sex buyers. Mm-hmm. The sex buyers inflict the violence. The sex buyers, I was at a hearing yesterday in um, D.C. And um, because there's a bill to decriminalize the sex trade there, And one advocate spoke about a legal sex shop in Amsterdam where it's legal. Because it's legal there, there's regulations. And one of the regulations was that pillows need to be in the brothel rooms. And the sex shop owner said, why would you put pillows in there? That's a murder weapon. So it's just really important to remember that the buyers, they're not clients. They're not just harmlessly purchasing sex. They're buying access to a woman's body and once they have that access, they report in that they feel that they have the right to do whatever they want once mm-hmm. they've paid and they fuel this industry. So if you strip away any penalties for sex buying, if you normalize it, the, it works like any other you, you know, market where the demand will increase. And, and the violence will increase. The, the violence will increase and the supply will have to increase to meet that demand. Mm-hmm. And that's where trafficking happens. There aren't enough people in the sex trade consensually to meet that legalized demand. So then who fills it? Again, our most marginalized members of society mm-hmm. are trafficked in to fill it.
3: Women and women of color and LGBTQ yeah. men and women. and Exactly.
4: And furthermore, decriminalization and, and legalizing brothels that leads to more brothels. More brothels mm-hmm. leads to more demand. You, again, you have to fill that supply. Mm-hmm. So it's just...
3: Yeah, and, and it is curious to me why we have this idea that there are respectful, that clients are respectful of these women.
4: Right. You know, another point I heard yesterday at the hearing from so many survivors, buyers don't care and they don't know. They don't know if you're in this consensually. They don't know if you're trafficked. What are they, check IDs? Is there, Do mm-hmm. you have an ID that says, I want to be doing this? And so many survivors talked about how when asked, and and this goes back to your your question about numbers and reporting, when people who are under the control of a pimp or exploiter are asked, are you doing this consensually? They're not going to tell the truth. They're terrified for their lives. They have complete PTSD. They're likely addicted to drugs to Mm -hmm. cope with the trauma that they're dealing with. And so they're not going to tell you. Mm-hmm. The truth, and and it might even be years before they understand that mm-hmm. the, that reality. Well, so many people don't get to process
3: their trauma until they're out of a traumatic situation, mm-hmm. yeah. because the, I mean, our brains are literally wired to shut us down mm-hmm. so that we can survive. And when you're in survival mode, you're not exactly in your most psychologically open and and self you know comprehensive state to discuss what's happening to you. It's, exactly. it's so strange that we expect people to feel that way. And, and when you think about even, you know, if we get out of the sex trade, when we talk about sexual violence, think about how long it can take a girl. And, you know, the stat is that nearly one in four girls in the U.S. will be sexually mm-hmm. assaulted or raped by the time she's 22. Mm-hmm. Think about how long it takes a girl to tell her parents, if yeah.
4: she ever tells I know, her and parents. it's held against them. Well, you didn't report it. Why mm-hmm. didn't you tell anyone that uh, the fact that that goes to issues of credibility, it makes it incredibly hard
3: yeah and so i I just when i when i put it under that lens i can't imagine how a woman or a person in this position while to your point under the control of someone else who is exploiting their personhood is going to be like hey guys guess what this is exactly what's happening to me and this person might kill me for telling you but obviously i'm going to tell you because you told me i should
4: yeah that's insane And really, when you start to do your own research into this issue and look online and you'll see very vocal women who say, I want to be doing this. I'm a sex worker. This is my choice. And you wonder where are the voices of the survivors. But you really have to consider they're dealing with so much trauma. And sometimes it's hard enough to get out of bed and brush your teeth, let alone go and talk in a soapbox about your traumatic, your most horrible traumatic experiences we work really hard not to re-traumatize our survivors and and put them out to speak about their experiences before they're ready. Mm. So there's a few survivors who we work with who have done so much work to get to a place where they can talk about it. And even for them, it's, it's hard after a day like yesterday. It's triggering. Mm. And you're being spoken down to by white men council members who are trying to decide that your body should be for sale and Mm. it's really hard to sit in that room and not actually see like this is white privilege at its worst this Mm -hmm. is this isn't protecting women of color and girls of color this is protecting white men who want to buy them this law and it's protecting epstein and it's disgusting
3: it's so awful yeah in looking at your work one of the things that you talk about being an alternative to this is the equality model. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you can just explain to people what that is. Because I yeah. do think it's really helpful to not only educate listeners on signs and, and facts and the problem, but to give people the verbiage to then go out and advocate and have these conversations in their own community. Because yeah. maybe they'll hear someone say, we should decriminalize you know, the sex trade. And it's like, well, actually not all of it. Yeah, So exactly. We have a solution.
4: So yeah, there's an alternative to full decriminalization and to the status quo. And that's called the equality model. It's also known as the Nordic model. It was pioneered in Sweden and since adopted by seven other countries, including Canada, France, Israel, Ireland, South Africa is considering it right now. Spain's Mm -hmm. considering it. And Nowhere in the United States has officially passed it. Some already operate, some states already operate in that under the equality model. But what it first and foremost does is decriminalize the sex trade for people in prostitution. So another thing you can call it is partial decriminalization Mm. because, like I said, people who are bought and sold in the sex trade should never be arrested for their being victims or being there by choice, however you proceed or however you've gotten into the sex trade. It should be decriminalized. Though, where it differs from the full decriminalization model is that there's a very heavy focus on demand. Like I said, the buyers are the economic engine of this industry. If you deter buyers, you can shrink the industry. This is a multi billion dollar industry.
3: I read it's $150 billion a year
4: globally that we know about. Yes. And so, if you think about that, that's so insane. Yeah. And then when you do the math and you think about that at maybe a hundred dollars, which is on the high end per sex act, how many rapes that is per year globally, and versus the amount of prosecutions that happen, maybe a handful of those people get prosecuted, buyers and exploiters. Mm. So the the equality model really shifts the stigma away from the people who are in prostitution to the sex buyers. There's a huge public awareness campaign about the harms of buying sex, that it's not a victimless crime, that that we just have a zero tolerance policy for buying sex. And we've already started that conversation with the Me Too movement and mm. saying, no, men can't use their positions of power and privilege and to coerce you know, women below them. So then why would we legalize that? But I digress. So then the third prong of the equality model is to provide really robust services to the women who are leaving, who choose to leave the sex trade. Those services include legal, medical, clinical, economic empowerment, housing. And we're already doing that in New York. We have working, we've been working with city council and we have something called the Empower Clinic. And it's a place where women can seek all of these services and it's an alternative, because what, what happens now is women aren't, they're still arrested for prostitution, but they are, the, rather than prosecuted, sent through human trafficking intervention courts, and that's a way to connect them with services. This takes law enforcement out of it completely, mm. so that if someone chooses to exit the sex trade or to seek these services, it it really is their choice.
3: That's amazing.
4: Yeah. So we fully support the equality model. We're writing our uh, legislation right now. We have incredible sponsors in the Assembly and the Senate
6: mm-hmm.
4: and who really, really understand that decriminalizing the sex trade would be an indelibly dangerous path for the most marginalized women in our society and that this is a way to create equality.
3: That's so cool. Thank you so much for explaining it. It's also so special. I'm having this moment watching you talk about it as as soon as you got into speaking about what's happening in New York and the empowerment clinic and the bill you're right like you are your whole face lit up and you have like this like beaming smile i wish that people listening could see you because i think it's such a wonderful thing when you get to see someone just be lit up from within cuz they're doing what they're called to do or yeah. meant to do or whatever you want to say it and it's it's awesome that in in such a serious sort of arena mm-hmm. where the subject matter is heavy and has real consequences, you find like your ultimate joy in your advocacy. Mm-hmm. And I can see it on your face. and you. It's just cool. I get excited. I'm just like, you're changing the world. Thank you. <laughs> so when we're talking about where the equality model has been instituted, talk to me about Amsterdam. Does it, does it actually work there?
4: So Amsterdam is a regime that's where prostitution is legalized. It's fully, fully decriminalized. Full, well, there's there's a small distinction. Regimes that fully decriminalize strip all penalties away from the crimes, and it's sort of a free-for-all. So New Zealand has decriminalized the industry, and that's what they're proposing in New York. In Germany and in Amsterdam it's legalized. So brothels are legal. There are ordinances about them, there are rules, you know, and those rules like I gave the pillow example. What's happened in Amsterdam and in Germany is that the legalized sex trades end up being run by organized crime. So the purported uh, you know, healthcare benefits that people in the sex trade get or or the empowerment or the autonomy that the people in the sex trade supposedly get, actually isn't a reality. Mm. Over 90% of the people who fill legalized brothels in Germany are trafficked from Eastern Europe and Western Africa. They're not legal. They're not seeking those benefits. Mm. Something that happened in Amsterdam is that they've started to roll back their red light districts and close them because the mayor of Amsterdam has said that you actually can't create a legal safe sex trade. It's just not possible. There are pimps who work, you know, as security guards who stand outside the legal brothels to keep the women supposedly safe. But what happens when people go around to check on conditions? Like a um, welfare check by someone from the state. Right. The women aren't fully able to, they're not able to tell the truth. They can't say, no, the conditions are horrible. No, I'm being exploited because their pimp is standing there as their security guard. Mm. And... You can talk all all you want about anecdotes, but when you look at the data of those countries about the increase in violence, increase in abuse, increase in organized crime, it speaks for itself.
3: So in a way, our desire to think that we could create policies that would create a legal and safe sex trade is disproven by the data, is what you're saying. Exactly. Like we have this idea that if we just legalize it, people can get tested and people will be protected and people won't be burned or beaten or strangled or shot by the people who are purchasing exactly. access to their bodies for sex, but the data shows otherwise exactly. in the countries that have tried.
4: Last year in Germany, the owners of one of the biggest legal brothels, like the brothel you read about that you hear about in, in any conversation about this, was arrested for tra- trafficking. Wow.
3: And it's a, and it's a legal, it's a legal brothel. brothel.
4: And what happens when brothels are legal and what what would happen in New York are, are these mega brothels are erected. So in Germany, they're there like seven-story tall mega brothels with a different fetish on every floor. If you want sex with a pregnant woman, if you want to take all your friends and have a gangbang. And there are, there are like Yelp reviews of these. And on opening weekend of this one mega brothel in Germany, 1,700 men lined up around the block to go to, into the brothel and wrote reviews afterwards. Like by the end of the day, the women were tired. They felt used up and complained, wanted their money back.
3: Wanted their money back because these women had been, quote, used up. Yeah. And didn't seem into it. Yeah. Wow. And then we come to find out that a lot of those women were actually trafficked. Right. Wow. And then we were we were talking and you said something to me that was so disturbing about New Zealand.
4: Yeah. So in New Zealand where it's decriminalized, law enforcement don't decriminalization. Really, yeah law enforcement don't really have any grounds to, to go in and regulate it at all because it's not regulated. It's decriminalized. So yesterday, again, at the hearing, I heard someone tell a story about a child in New Zealand being raped and reporting to law enforcement and law enforcement have a really hands-off approach. You know, it's, it's not our, you know, we can't do anything. It's, there's no regulations. Who says it, that that can't happen? And so crime and violence and abuse against people in the sex trade there goes really unprosecuted. That's something that
3: really upsets me that we hear a lot. And I don't understand how we don't have harder lines with children, especially like when, when Santoya Brown's case sort of gained all of this public awareness and they were speaking about her and they were saying, well, a 16-year-old prostitute. And it's like a 16-year-old yeah. can't be a prostitute. No. A 16-year-old is a child who is a victim of sex trafficking, who yeah. is being raped. She's a child. Yeah. And to your point, nothing changes at 18. A victim is a victim. Right. Um, but it's, it's a strange thing. But there thing. is no child prostitution. There's no such thing as child prostitution. That yeah. is not a thing. It is a term we should never, ever, ever use. And, 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 and by the way, the legal
4: definition is that if you're... Under 18, you're a per se victim of trafficking.
3: The example you give about New Zealand is so crazy to me because the idea that law enforcement would say, well, sex acts are all decriminalized here and who's to say that that wasn't part of it. When they're paid for. Right.
4: When when it's a commercial sexual act. So the
3: idea that someone paid for something and Mm. raped a child – It was something they felt like they couldn't touch
4: because of the decay. Right. right. And and then And that I mean, that's not to say that they don't have in their I actually am not quite sure what age, but that New Zealand cuts it off, but that it's not technically legal to purchase a child there. But just law enforcement's ability to really regulate it is is compromised.
3: Right and it's and it's their inability to act because they don't know where the line is drawn right. that is dangerous in real time. I think people forget that it doesn't matter if there's legislation if the legislation can't be practically enacted in real time. Yeah. And that New Zealand story feels like a perfect example of that. What do you think needs to happen for the equality model to exist here because you know, obviously you're doing incredible advocacy work and there are attorneys all across mm-hmm. the U.S. trying to, you know, help this become law here. But what can the rest of us do to support your work and to and to help, cl- you know, kind yeah. of climber for this?
4: I think spread the word, educate that there's a third alternative and that when you read an article in Teen Vogue that says sex work is work and question it and push back on Teen Vogue, who um, mm. wrote an incredibly distasteful, horrible article glamorizing the sex trade. And you know, take to social media and convince millennials that it's not empowering to let men buy access to your body and that when there's a price tag on one woman, there's a price tag on all women.
3: And I think that's such an interesting thing because to your point, there are people who find their personal empowerment in All sorts of ways. There's all sorts of avenues. There's all sorts of choice. But as you're saying that, I am realizing, you know, I I mentioned to you, and again, it's I'm I'm not at liberty to tell someone else's story, but I sat down with someone Mm -hmm. who explained how her work in the sex trade empowered her and changed her life. And she's no longer in it. But it, it was a really interesting conversation. And so in this moment i'm going oh right it's so important to qualify in in the math mm-hmm. you know right. yeah there could be this story to tell but Absolutely. it's but it is globally an anomaly and, and that yeah, doesn't shame her right at all no. but but it, i think it's a really important distinction to draw that there are quite literally you know they they say that there are more slaves on earth today than there were during the slave trade and a huge percentage of those people who are enslaved are enslaved for sex work.
6: Yeah. And
3: the and the idea that yeah. there are tens of millions, potentially hundreds of millions of people who are being forced to do this, who are being raped and who are being abused and who are being trafficked. It's like we we have to remember that we can't simply celebrate one person's success and eradicate everyone else's story. Absolutely. In, in any in any industry. You know, but this in particular to look at
4: this issue. What what often ends up happening is to look people look at it on a really individual basis, right? uh, And um, you have to look at it as the greater good of society and Mm -hmm. as the whole. What what do we want for our country and for our future and for the girls we're raising and the boys we're raising? Mm -hmm. And you linked it to the slave trade, and we very deliberately use the term sex trade to make Mm -hmm. that link because it would be going back in time. Yeah, to enslaving people, to yeah. to, to legalize buying people.
7: Mm-hmm.
3: And you said something earlier too that really struck a chord in me that these buyers of women and, and the men who are in the sex trade really look at those people as property. They mm-hmm. look at them as a thing they can do what mm-hmm. they want with. And, yeah. and they believe that when money has exchanged hands, they have carte blanche to do whatever they want. And it's odd that because of the completely, not odd, it's traumatizing actually, That because of the completely immediate and transactional nature of the experience that these buyers have with sex workers, with, mm-hmm. with people in the sex trade,
8: mm-hmm.
3: is that they're not humanized at all. Right. But they're very human. But they're mm-hmm. being treated like a twisted doll of some sort. Yeah. You know, it's like I can do whatever I want with you. I can take it as far as I want with you. Yeah. And when I leave, I never have to think about you again.
4: And you know what fuels all of that? Pornography. <laughs> so dangerous. Yeah.
3: And kids are being exposed to pornography. at such so young right ages and
4: it's so violent and um, it's fueling all of this.
3: I'm curious, because of the problem of porn mm-hmm. and, you know, all the good researchers are talking about how porn is like the downfall of relationships, of sexual intimacy. Yeah. Um, it's causing increases of violence and trauma and all of these things. How do you see the internet play into the sex trade because – I think about pornography and I think about – I remember the story about Backpage being yeah. shut down and all – how does all of this yeah. work? It just
4: increases access. A number of years ago, if you wanted to buy sexual access to a person, you'd have to go down to a, uh, what we call a track, a seedy part of town, and do it in person. And so that was a barrier to some people. But with the proliferation of the internet, sex trafficking increased 180 percent since Backpage from – when Backpage started, until it was shut down last year, and so there were studies done that, for example, in Seattle, there was a study that the highest time of day that men purchased sex was at 2 p.m. I get back from lunch break, go to their desk, sit down, and go online and do that. So just the increased access to to purchasing sex again led to an increase, a huge increase in demand, and that demand um, gets. As men get bored of of just purchasing someone their age for sex, um, then they want someone younger and younger and younger. And, you know, most most sex buyers are employed. Most are partnered. It's really anyone. And, and when the person who's sitting next to you in a cubicle can go online and buy a woman for sex, how can he then go uh, sit next to you in a conference room and treat you as an equal or see you as an equal? We really need to shift the whole conversation to sex buyers.
6: And
3: what happens if a, if a man gets back from lunch and sits down at his desk at 2 p.m. And, and buys sexual access to another human being? When it, when does that happen? I, so, la- yeah, you, you order a girl for, for later. later?
4: Yeah. yeah. You make your after work plans.
3: Oh, my God.
4: Yeah. And, and what- I think that study, if I remember correctly, was primarily men in the tech businesses. Wow. Yeah.
3: And for people listening who may not know, can you can you run us through what Backpage was and how that worked?
4: Yeah. So Backpage was like a Craigslist online platform that had a huge adult services section. Before they shut down, they were making over $150 million a year off their adult services section. And there was a really outdated law called the Communications Decency Act that held websites, gave them immunity from any accountability if a third party posted on their site. So because Backpage said they weren't authoring the ads, they were immune to any prosecution under this statute. We spent a few years lobbying hard to close that loophole, and it passed, and it's an incredible piece of legislation that very narrowly amends the Communications Decency Act so that websites who knowingly facilitate human trafficking can be held accountable. So this doesn't you know, affect... If people who call themselves sex workers want to go online and and say, like, don't go on a date with this guy. He's dangerous. It doesn't affect that. That's not knowingly facilitating human trafficking. Mm -hmm. However, when you Google the legislation, which is called FOSTA-SESTA, you get a huge amount of negative information about it. You hear that it drove prostitution back onto the streets and made it more dangerous. But what really happened is that it shut down an entire marketplace where mm-hmm. men could anonymously go online and buy people for sex, most often children. There was no way. God. There's no way to screen how, how old someone is on Backpage. You just put 18 and it, and they're 18. Mm-hmm. And so um, since Backpage closed, there's been – within the first 72 hours, there was a – 80% reduction in trafficking online.
3: Wow. So, That's something that people need to be including in these articles. Yeah. And, and, and but it dawned on me when you said that the internet took the barrier away, that people used to have to go somewhere yeah. to actually physically search yeah. out a person. You can't watch someone via an internet exchange. Exactly. But back pushing sex the sex trade back onto the streets means people can be surveilled. They can be exactly. followed. Law enforcement can actually – Crack down on this, hopefully rescue these sex workers
4: and criminalize right. these these johns and, and these pimps. And for people who are in the sex trade who say that the internet gave them like a layer of safety, to your exact point, how? You can't see who's on the other end of the computer. Mm. You don't know until that person shows up, opens your door, comes inside, if they're going to be the next person that beats you or suffocates you with a pillow mm-hmm. or sodomizes you or any number of horrific, dangerous acts. You don't know that from the internet. How does the internet add a layer of safety? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an argument that you often hear um, about why FOSTA-SESTA made, made it so dangerous. Wow. But, you know, tech was really against it at first, free speech and all that.
3: But we, we have to do the work. We have to do something to mm-hmm. protect vulnerable people. And,
4: and it- we legislate for the many, not the few. Mm -hmm. You know, to your point of of the really individual stories, honor them, hear them, respect them. But we legislate for the many and for those for the last girl, as uh, one of our advocates says, you know, those who are most marginalized, most need it.
3: As we talk about the reporting on it, because you do talk about the fact that there's not a lot of statistics and also that the stories around the reality of these policies can get very conflated and and whatnot how do we get better numbers and reporting how do you, how do you think we get to that do you think we need that
4: i don't know if we need it i think it helps people to mobilize to hear mm. numbers and and people often want to know like really what percentage of the sex trade it, people in the sex trade are consensual and not consensual and, and and we are sort of obsessed with numbers it doesn't bother me that i don't know exactly because i understand why it's so hard to like so much sexual violence it's it's underreported you know there are barriers to reporting and then it's so hard to quantify if you were trafficked at 13 out of your foster home or out of a shelter and and you it's the only life you know and you don't go to high school and you and so you don't have an education and you don't have any earning potential and now you're 22 and you've already been through hell and back and the only life you know is prostitution and you are without a pimp does that mean you're consensually in the sex trade did right. you are are you there by choice? So how can you even quantify that?
3: That's a really good point. And all of it makes me just want to ask you. I mean, you are choosing to serve people in a very hard space. This is emotionally taxing work that you're doing. And I imagine there are days that are really gut-wrenching. And how do you how do you do it? How do you do your job and, and also make space for yourself and yeah. for joy and, you know, for your kids. And what's the tactic or what are the tactics that you have to sort of yeah. employ to do that?
4: I never don't want to go to work. I love my job. Mm-hmm. I love the people I work with on both sides. I love my colleagues who are also little social justice warriors and advocates and they inspire me and I wish you could talk to all of them because they're a thousand times better on this subject than I am. And and I love the clients that we work with and the survivors and they're inspiring. If I mean, how can I ever complain about anything in my life if, if they're getting out of bed at 5 a.m. and getting on a bus to D.C. to go testify against a bill that they just know will affect their brothers and sisters across the country? God, they're so inspiring. Mm. And then I come home to two amazing kids who Make me happier than anything. So,
3: oh, so how old I, are they? They're
4: uh, one and a half and three and a half.
3: Oh, so fun! Yeah, one of my best friends has a one and a half year old baby. Oh, she's, it's a really fun stage. She's delicious. Community brings a lot of relief and a lot of joy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think in any sort of arena that's tough or intense or yeah. grueling. So I imagine your community is one of the answers to this next question. But I'm curious, also. What makes you feel hopeful?
4: I th- Yeah, I think it's sort of a, the same answer, the people that I work with. And we'll, we'll go around and we'll meet with legislators and we'll meet with community members and, you know, we'll just educate people and sometimes we'll get pushback. And then sometimes we'll have a meeting that just gives you so much hope. Some, mm. some politician who's a visionary who you just so implicitly trust is going to lead us in the right direction. Mm. And that gives me hope. And seeing, I mean, in in reaction to everything that's happened this year, seeing young people be active in a way that I've never seen and how they just take, they use their voices and they take to the streets and their marches and their social media and using all their platforms in a way that I don't think we've ever seen. So that gives me hope.
3: Yeah, they're pretty badass. Yeah. On all subjects. Yeah. It's really great.
4: It's really exciting. Except this one.
3: <laughs> well, but again, I think to your point, it's about you know who's getting to tell the story. Yeah. And yeah, great to to say as a bunch of feminists to to someone who is in sort of a, a space that they say like I love this and this was my choice yeah. and this is how it works for me. Like more power to you, but tens of millions of people don't have that yeah. luxury and we have to fight for them. Exactly. It's wrong not to because it's because it's working just for one person. Yeah. And to your point, the excellent version of this kind of legislation being the equality model mm-hmm. wouldn't criminalize that person who's living her best life right. anyway, but it would protect tens of millions or potentially hundreds of millions of people who are not. And right. that's got to be the point. Yeah. Well, my last question for you uh, is one that I like to ask everybody. The title of the podcast is called Work in Progress. And I'm curious what in your life comes to mind as a work in progress for you right now?
4: Oh, well, I think all of it. Children certainly are. Um, marriages and And my work is. I think right now i'm i'm so have my head in this drafting of the equality model and what do we want to go into it and how do we defeat the other bills and how do we educate people and then i took a step back yesterday and said to one of my colleagues like this could be a 5 to 10 year battle this isn't this isn't i need a reminder this isn't happening this year so that's definitely a work in progress mm. you know i have the amazing privilege to raise two boys and to figure out how i want to teach them respect and and how to be interested and smart and curious children. And it's all a work in progress. (laughs) Yeah. I feel that. Super cool. Yeah. Except my apartment. It feels done.
3: No, your apartment is (laughs) done. But you got got an inside line there. Yeah. Yeah. Fun fact. uh, Alexi's sister happens to be one of the great, well, half of one of the great design duos in America, potentially the world. I don't know thank uh, Yeah. I like, I, I fangirl follow her on Instagram. And the first time she replied to me, I was like, Oh my God. Hi, I think you're so amazing. Cool. Cool. Okay. Anyway, I've seen everything you've ever done. Okay. Bye. Now I have to tell
4: her she has to listen to the whole podcast
3: just to get to her. Again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll be like, and just a little plug. Yeah. For, R- for yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you can follow you can follow the their well the duo, Ashley Andro, on Instagram. And I repost a lot of their work on my little like design feed. So anyway, uh, yep, just so a cool. moment. I think I'm turning red. It's fine. <laughs> I do that. She'll a lot. love
4: that. Cool. <laughs> and you can follow no buyer, no pimp, NY, like New York, to learn more about this issue. Awesome. Thank you for bringing attention to this. Like oh I said, God. just talking about it teaching people that there's a third alternative Mm -hmm. uh, is really important because I think a lot of people instinctively know that criminalizing people in prostitution isn't what they want. Mm -hmm. But I think once they learn that that decrim also means pimps and buyers and brothels and sex tourism and the likes, there's a third way. Yeah. So thank you.
3: Yeah. Thank you. Because it really is important for people to have access to the expertise there's so much information out there like you said you google things and you get you get reviews that may be completely inaccurate to to the way that they're going to affect the public or public policy and so for you to open up your home and your time to really help people who who are not lawyers in this arena get into your brain is a gift so thank you thank you Hey guys, we wanted to include a follow-up to the conversation that I had with Alexi with a panel that she recently moderated on the link between sex trafficking and prostitution and why full decriminalization, in her opinion, is not the answer to protect people who do sex work. It's really powerful, so I hope you'll continue listening.
4: There's a movement again uh, among some progressive liberals uh, to decriminalize the sex trade. This movement touts the ideology that sex work is work, that prostitution is a choice, that it's empowering. Uh, They even go so far as to say that legalizing the sex trade would have no effect on human trafficking. Uh, Were it not for my work as um, a prosecutor of human trafficking cases and my um, privilege to work among these incredibly brilliant, brave uh, warriors, I might also um, subscribe to that ideology. But instead, I know that it's not empowering, that this kind of legislation would be regressive, that sex buyers fuel the industry and create the demand, that there's a historical acceptance of violence against women of color who are bought and sold, and that the sex trade is an inherently predatory industry that preys on vulnerabilities. People among both sides of the divide agree that no one in prostitution should be criminalized, Um, But where we differ is in how to provide meaningful services to those people to help them exit prostitution and um, how to recommend policy around sex buyers and pimps. So um, without further ado, I am uh, thrilled and honored to introduce you to these leaders who can help us explore these uh, themes even further. So I want to start and ask you each to introduce yourselves, who you are, what you do, and how you got there.
5: Um, My name is Yasmin Vafa. I am the co-founder and executive director of Rights for Girls, which is a human rights organization based in Washington, D.C., dedicated to ending gender-based violence against young women and girls in the United States. And how I come to this work uh, is as an Iranian-American woman who uh, immigrated to this country with my family in the 80s during the Iran-Iraq War. Uh, And so I've always had innate... um, understanding of this struggle for women's rights and girls' rights coming from the Middle East, but it wasn't until my law school years where I realized the extent to which the United States denigrates the rights of young women and girls. And so I became very passionate about working to address those issues here in the United States, um, which led to the founding of Rights for Girls. Uh, As an advocate, I became very frustrated in navigating a number of different advocacy spaces where girls' lives were really invisible, whether it was in in the criminal justice or juvenile justice realm, in the domestic violence, sexual assault realm, or even in the anti-trafficking realm. uh, Girls, and particularly marginalized girls of color, were really invisible. And so we started Rights for Girls um, to really center the voices and the needs of our most marginalized girls. And so that's how I come to this work.
7: Hi, everyone. Um, My name is Melanie Thompson. I am a survivor of human trafficking. Um, I was trafficked here in New York City when I was 12 years old and then later arrested. Um, And I got into this work because um, upon my arrest, I was sent to a juvenile detention upstate, and there was a famous New York Times editor who came to interview the staff of that facility. Um, And the staff of that facility essentially introduced that editor to myself to do an interview, and then I was introduced to the world of advocacy. um, And I never stopped since then. I realized that this... Uh, my voice was not only powerful and, and necessary, um, but definitely one that could serve as a voice for the voiceless, as I like to say. So um, I'm here and I'm gonna continue to fight the fight.
6: Hello, my name is Anne Matheson. I'm the lead program specialist in the Justice and Empowerment for Teens initiative at Sanctuary for Families. It's a clinical program providing therapy services to young adult survivors of the commercial sex industry. I started um, in this work over a decade ago in Seattle. I met a number of survivors in Seattle. I had already had a lot of concerns about this issue because I had seen friends of mine pulled into the industry and severely hurt by the industry. Um, So while I was living in Seattle, I met advocates, survivors, who were in the process of creating a new nonprofit, the Organization for Prostitution Survivors. So I worked with them to found that nonprofit and worked there for for a number of years. And then I traveled to Sweden um, to complete a Fulbright fellowship. I was researching global prostitution policy and specifically looking at the equality model in Sweden and comparing it to other models.
0: My name is Christian Eduardo. I'm a Mexican immigrant. I'm a member of the LGBT community, and I'm a survivor of international domestic sex and labor traffic, and actually I started to advocate this year, and the reason is because I need to break the stigma about certain things. The first is that all the people in prostitution are there by choice, that's not true. The second is that trafficking is only happening in kids and women, that's not true. I'm a male, and I was trafficked as an adult. And the third thing is that trafficking is happening here, and it's it's happening in our communities.
8: Good evening, everyone. My name is Laura Ramirez. I'm the program coordinator for the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women, uh, the first international nonprofit organization to fight commercial sexual exploitation. Um, I'm also a... Core organizer with Affirm New York, which is a transnational feminist organization that does grassroots advocacy um, towards uh, genuine transnational feminist liberation. The word transnational means that no matter where you are in the world, your advocacy cannot ignore or forget the experiences of our sisters back home, and that's exactly what I am doing here in this work and in all of my work for the rest of my life, which is understanding that we are not alone in this world and that everything we do, especially here in the United States, the most privileged country in the world, affects women and girls all over the world. Thank
4: you. So Yasmin, the topic of sex trafficking and the sex trade is in the news almost daily. With high profile cases like Robert Kraft and Jeffrey Epstein, most people have really still not thought about the links between the sex trade, which includes prostitution and sex trafficking. Can you start by giving an overview about what sex trafficking is and then explain the link between the two?
5: Sure, so um, under the law, the crime of sex trafficking occurs anytime an adult is forced or coerced into the sex trade or anytime a child under the age of 18 is involved in the sex trade. Um, of course, a lot of people talk about the issue of prostitution and sex trafficking as if they're two totally distinct uh, issues, but we know from our work that in fact these issues are inextricably linked, and that's true for a number of reasons. Um, first, it's important to realize that when people talk about sex trafficking, what we're actually saying is people who are trafficked into prostitution. Um, another way of saying that is that although sex trafficking might be the means, prostitution is the ultimate end. That this all operating in the same ecosystem uh, and that certainly sex buyers who are soliciting individuals in the sex trade are not meaningfully able to discern whether an individual they're purchasing is trafficked or not. Um, the other way in which these two issues are linked is that we know from survivors and much of the global research that the vast majority of adults in the sex trade first entered as children. So under the law, they would be considered child sex trafficking victims. And so it's important to think about um, what happens when these kids turn 18, right? Does this automatically become an empowered career choice for them, even if they maybe no longer have a trafficker? Um, So it's really important to understand how these two systems are actually very closely connected, um, and we also have to understand how the policies that we, um, you know, enact to address one of these issues inevitably impact the other.
4: And really quickly, can you go over, there's been bills introduced in both D.C. and New York. Um, What... Do those bills decriminalize?
5: Sure. So there's been a lot of momentum around, um, you know, the need to decriminalize, quote unquote, sex work. Um, and I think people hear this and and initially um, might have a very, you know, strong... Um, you know, desire to, to support these moves, because I think we initially think, as you said, that it's really important to decriminalize individuals who are engaged in prostitution, who happen to be some of the most vulnerable members of our community, who often entered the sex industry as children. Um, but what these bills do is actually go much farther than that. Um, what they do is seek to legitimize the sex industry by repealing all of the laws around um, sex buying, pimping and pandering, as well as brothel keeping. And and what we know know is that in doing so they actually fuel more harm, more violence, more exploitation, and actually directly lead to increased levels of sex trafficking. Um, We all know that sex buying is illegal uh, in most parts of the country except for a handful of counties in Nevada. And despite that, there are millions of men willing to break the law in order to buy sex. So imagine what would happen if suddenly we were to repeal those laws. Um, More men would inevitably enter the market, not just from that jurisdiction but from other jurisdictions where it remains illegal as sex tourists Um, and what that does is it drives up the demand Uh, and the reality of the sex trade is that you're never going to have as many truly willing and consenting participants as a never-ending demand requires and so that's where sex trafficking comes into play uh, because traffickers will always seek to capitalize on that demand and they do so by targeting our most vulnerable.
4: Exactly. So Anne, can you talk about um, the impacts that full decriminalization or legalization have had in the countries that have implemented these models?
6: For sure. So legalization and full decriminalization are nearly identical in um, implementation and the consequences that they both cause. In countries that fully decriminalize or legalize prostitution, um, more men buy sex, more women and children are trafficked into um, the commercial sex industry, primarily from poorer nations to meet that demand for paid sex. There are high rates of violence against people in the trade. Organized crime controls the majority of both the legal and illegal markets. And brothel owners conspire with the pimps and traffickers to fill their brothels with um, women and youth, primarily women and youth of color. In Germany, I'm going to talk about a number of countries now and give um, examples, specific examples from countries of how it's manifested. So in Germany, where um, prostitution is legalized, the intersection of capitalism and legalization has produced what they call flat rate and mega brothel chains. I'm gonna read a quote from a German news article that is uh, reviewing one of those brothel chains. Quote, when the Pussy Club, a flat rate brothel opened near Stuttgart, the management advertised the club as follows. Quote, sex with all women as long as you want as often as you want, sex, anal sex, oral sex without a condom, three ways, group sex, gang bangs, end quote. The price, 70 euros during the day and 100 in the evening. According to the police, about 1,700 men took advantage of the offer on the opening weekend. Buses arrived from far away and local newspapers reported that up to 700 men stood in line outside the brothel at any one time. Afterwards, customers wrote in internet chat rooms about the the, um, supposedly unsatisfactory service. They complained that the women were no longer as fit for use after a few hours. At closing time, many of the women collapsed from exhaustion, pain, injuries, and infections, including painful rashes and fungal infections that spread from their genitals down their legs. This club was closed one year later for sex trafficking that's in a country where it's legal. And that's We're in frustrated. Germany where it's legalized. So um, now I'm going to talk a little bit about full decriminalization. Again, these are really the same models. The abstract theory behind full decriminalization is that the sex trade, a trade that is rife with violence and abuse, will somehow self-regulate to prevent exploitation. In 2003, New Zealand decriminalized sex buying, pimping, and selling. After full decrim, the number of unregulated brothels increased, and there were a high number of reports of incidents of violence against women in the industry, including murder. Eighty percent of the women who are exploited in street-based prostitution in New Zealand are Maori and Polynesian. Rather than reducing the number of children exploited in the sex trade, New Zealand Commissioner for Children, Dr. Cindy Kiro, stated that New Zealand has a clear problem of child exploitation which she said had most likely worsened since decriminalization. Police reports indicate that girls as young as 12 are being sold on the streets to adult men. And this is because there's a demand in New Zealand for children, because the buyers want unprotected sex, but they also don't want STIs. So sex buyers don't differentiate. They don't ask someone if they're trafficked. They don't ask someone, are you over the age of 18? In fact, many sex buyers are actually specifically seeking out children because they really want someone who they can manipulate and control, who they can act out you know, whatever fantasy of dominance and degradation that they want. And they find that vulnerability of the person that they're buying arousing. So even though New Zealand has been identified as a destination country for trafficking, it took the country 12 years to prosecute a single trafficker. Because after full decriminalization, it became the case that the laws were so advantageous to traffickers. I'm going to talk, just if, it, if we have the time, we'll talk about the Netherlands too, because this is another country that people hold up as an example of um, success, which is a, a really a big myth. So in Netherlands, the sex industry is legalized. And because the sex industry is so controlled by organized crime, many Dutch cities had to close their legal prostitution zones, and Amsterdam closed half of their legal prostitution um, windows because the city council had determined that they were completely run by organized crime. An investigative report was published by the National Police Service, and it documented that criminal gangs working as pimps and bodyguards had been using extreme violence against women in the industry. Um, and specifically in the legal, licensed, supposedly safe, protected portion of the industry. And the report asked how is this possible? How is it that sex trafficking is happening almost unimpeded in the legal? sector of our industry, and they identified five answers, and I think these are really important because if New York legalizes prostitution or you know fully decriminalizes whatever we wanna call it, these will be the same results that we'll see. So they found that law enforcement has a lot less power to investigate, um, and in- they have a lot less incentive to investigate prostitution when it's a legal industry. The legal trade acts as a cover for the illicit market, making it really hard to track the illegal market. Brothel inspections are not successful in detecting exploitation in part because the women are often monitored by pimps when the inspectors are interviewing them. They found that the bodyguards were actually working for the criminal gangs. Many of the bodyguards were pimps themselves, and they also found that there was a high risk of collusion between the law enforcement and bodyguards. You gotta remember that when you legalize or fully decriminalize, as soon as that officer takes off his uniform, he can be a buyer too. And also they found that legalization relied on the goodwill of the brothel owners and the sex buyers to prioritize um, reporting abuse over their own profit margins and personal sexual satisfaction.
4: So Melanie, here in New York, we have on the one hand, uh, prostituted people are criminalized under the law. And on the other hand, there's this, strong cultural and media push to celebrate prostitution as a job like any other and as empowering. As a survivor of sex trafficking and prostitution, can you explain why you do not use the language of sex work?
7: Absolutely. Um, So I love to say that sex is not work and work is not sex. You cannot buy consent. And there's this huge misconception. Everybody agrees that those who are trafficked shouldn't be and that trafficking is bad, but there's always this argument when it comes to this idea of consensual sex work. Um, and what a lot of people fail to realize is that prostitution is a system, not an isolated act, that is fueled on other oppressive systems. So what I think our community needs to understand around sex work is the fact that prostitution is, is fueled on misogyny, capitalism, and patriarchy. And if you don't have a clear understanding of those three um, oppressive systems, then you're not gonna fully understand how prostitution can never be considered consensual.
4: Concise, I love it.
7: (laughs) Kristin Eduardo, um, can you
4: talk a little bit about how prostitution affects the LGBTQ community?
0: Well, now with this movement, we have been hearing that especially the LGBT community, it's on vogue about this. It's like, oh, this is the progressive thing that we can do. Prostitution is the best thing that you can do. And it's interesting because the LGBT community has been always seen as the freaks, as the ones who are willing to do, by choice, all the dirty things on sex and are willing, like, to try, no matter how weird, how harm, how how much danger, danger you can do to somebody. It doesn't matter. You always will tag the LGBT community as yes, they are willing to do because they enjoy it and they like it. But on the other hand, it's. And we think the same about prostitution, that we don't think the people engage in prostitution as we never think about them like, oh, this person needs to eat, this person needs housing, this person need they have all these need. I don't know if they are going to school, if not, if they are immigrants, if they have legal status or not. we Buyers never stop to think about this. So why and how this movement is now affecting the LGBT community? Well... LGBT community has a lot of vulnerabilities. We need a lot of housing. We are a lot of immigrants. We lack of legal status. We don't have opportunities for a job. But there is a common denominator on other communities. People of color is suffer from the same things. Black people is suffering from the same things. Immigrants are suffering from the thing, same same things. So it's not only LGBT communities that are being targeted by this new movement of prostitution. It's all our communities that are vulnerable, and at the, uh, at the end, it's all the communities that are, that are exposed and are in danger already. And we need to think about that we are more than holes and we are more than sticks, because it's the way that everybody's seen people in prostitution. So at the end, we are affecting human beings. And I don't know if you really have you ever stopped thinking about yourself and oh. Yes, why I don't wake up today like yes, let's go and have sex with random people and nasty people that I don't know and just because, I mean, I I feel it and it's empowering. I mean, have you ever heard about it? (laughs) Of course not. So we need to stop romanticizing prostitution. There is a lot of harm over it and this is not a solution for real. Full decriminalization is not the solution. We need more choices. We need more opportunities.
4: I agree. Laura, in the U.S., we know that it's primarily white men of privilege buying sexual access to the bodies of black and brown women and girls of color and members of the LGBTQ community. We cannot talk about the sex trade, sex trafficking, and sex buying without examining the legacies and ongoing impact of colonization and the slave trade. Can you speak about how combating prostitution is both a racial and gender justice issue?
8: Yeah, prostitution is a racial issue, it's a gender issue, but I would also go as far as to say that it is a matter of genocide. Um, So everyone knows the phrase, if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it, right? So um, I am going to share a history of my people, right? my colonized people. So uh, where my family is from, from the Caribbean islands, the native people were Taino Indians. And uh, women were actually matriarchs. So women um, fought alongside men. they um, worked politically alongside men. they actually worshiped goddesses. they were matri- they were a matrilineal society. And as soon as the colonizer stepped foot in Hispaniola, the very first thing that they did was sell our women. Christopher Columbus used to sell women girls. under the age of 12 years old. There are cases that say that he sold uh, Taino girls who were um, around nine years old. So um, fast forward 30 years in the island and 90% of Taino Indians were completely um, annihilated. Um, They were condemned to the slave trade and women in particular, because of their acute vulnerability of being women, were condemned to the slave trade. So when you hear people say prostitution is the world's oldest oppression, you can tell them that story about how my people didn't know prostitution until the colonizer stepped foot on our lands. So when we talk about um, liberation feminism, when we talk about decolonizing feminism, we're talking about going back to times where women didn't have to even deal with being and with existing as being a subordinate class. That's what we're talking about. So when people push the narrative, oh, you know, this is liberation politics, this is not liberation politics. We, the, the story that I just told is replicated all over the world. You can go to Africa, you can even go to places such as the Philippines, which still has a uh, booming sex industry, unfortunately, based, predicated on the same same concepts. Globally, this is not a profession, it never has, and I hope that after this panel you can understand that it never will be, and therefore we shouldn't um, pass legislations that enshrine our systematic historical oppression into law.
4: All right, so you've heard a lot about what we're against, and we talk about what legal framework we are for.
6: Absolutely. So we support um, a model called the Equality Model. This was a model that was uh, first pioneered in Sweden. Sweden um, was the first country to recognize that prostitution is neither work nor a victimless crime, but rather a severe form of gender-based violence. In 1999, Sweden passed the Peace for Women Act, um, which criminalized sex buying and pimping, while they also decriminalized the individuals who are being bought and sold in the industry. So they recognize that the individuals who are being exploited should not be criminalized for their own exploitation. The model is a combination of three equally important components. The first is that it provides robust social services to survivors so that they can exit and heal from um, the trauma that they endure in this industry. The second is that it uses a community education campaign to teach men about the harms that sex buying causes to um, individuals and to the community. And the third is that it changes the laws, as I mentioned at the beginning, to reflect that prostitution is a form of gender-based violence. Iceland and Norway followed Sweden, adopting the same legislation. And every year, I think this is a really interesting fact, every year these three countries are ranked among the top five of the World Economic Forum's index for equality between women and men. So each of these countries has made equality model policies part of their gender equality like legislation overall. It's important to note, because I think folks get concerned about this, that the equality model is not driven by incarceration. That's something that the United States really focuses on. Um, sex buyers are subject to fines on a sliding fee scale based on their income. The model, what it really does is it works to um, prevent this harm in the first place. So they strive to decrease demand by teaching men about the harms, and it also is committed to empowering marginalized communities um, and populations so that they don't get pulled into this destructive industry in the first place. So I really think it's important for us to recognize that it's about supporting survivors to heal from the trauma that they've endured. Um, I also want to just say really quickly that Uh, The equality model, because I think this helps folks to understand what the equality model is, it really recognizes that prostitution should be treated in the same way that we treat other forms of gender-based violence, like domestic violence. So the model only um, decriminalizes the individual who is uh, being exploited. It doesn't decriminalize the sex-buying, the pimping, the trafficking. And this model has been adopted in seven additional countries.
4: So there happens to be a huge misinformation campaign about this model, whereby detractors claim that it's a failure, that it pushes prostitution underground, makes it more dangerous for people in the sex trade. Um, We don't have time to get into all the myths, but can you address one or two of those myths? For sure.
6: So the equality model has decreased the size of the commercial sex trade, like I said, by decreasing the number of sex buyers uh, and pimps, and by preventing people from being pulled into the industry. Also, the model helps folks, as I said, who are in the, the sex trade to exit. And it's, and it's really important, again, they help them to access the services they need to heal. So what all of this means is that the equality model is a major threat to the big business interests that profit from the sex trade. This is, I, th- I just always wanna like contextualize this, this is a multi-billion dollar global industry. So a really big industry, a lot of folks with a lot of vested interest in seeing this industry uh, normalized, decriminalized, legalized, and seeing it expand across the globe. So also that means that there's there's significant power behind the scenes invested in discrediting the equality model, because the equality model is our single, like the single biggest threat to the sex industry right now. Before enacting the equality model, Sweden actually had a full decrim model and it was because of the failures that this model was showing in the country that they enacted the the equality model in the first place. And after it was passed, they saw sex, the percentage of men who were buying sex dropped from 13.6% to 7.4% and it was because the demand dropped that the size of the industry began to shrink dramatically. In our culture, we really hyper-fixate on the choices made by people who are bought and sold in the industry, and I always tell people that this is actually a form of victim-blaming. And it obscures and it hides the individuals who are truly making empowered choices, the pimps, the sex buyers, the traffickers. They are the individuals who decide how much they will pay, if they will use a condom, if they will rape the person that they've bought, if they will make the person that they're selling use a sponge, to hide their menstrual flow, these are the people that are making the choices. And extensive research from around the world shows that sex buyer and pimp violence is an embedded aspect of prostitution. Panic buttons in brothels, pimps posing as bodyguards, training in hostage negotiation skills, all of these things have been tried, and they don't make um, prostitution any safer because frankly prostitution is not safe. There's a study that was done in the United States, and 43% of the buyers in that study stated that if, if a man pays a woman for sex, that that woman should do anything he asks. There's a sense of ownership that comes when you buy another person's body. And in another study, nearly half of the buyers admitted that they had paid for sexual acts with someone they knew to be under the control of a pimp or trafficker. They just didn't care. So advocates in the sex trade, advocates of the sex trade, um, folks in the Netherlands, New Zealand, Denmark, and Germany, they all argued that they were decriminalizing or legalizing prostitution for the benefit of the women in the industry. But those who truly benefited from this multi-billion dollar trade and who continue to benefit are the brothel owners, the pimps, the sex buyers, and the governments who are bringing in significant tax and tourism revenue. Survivors, on the other hand, are dealing with acute and chronic medical illnesses and injuries that result from being repeatedly bought for sex by strangers, such as traumatic brain injuries from having one's head slammed into car doors and windows, genital and internal injuries, as well as common psychological impacts like PTSD, because you never know, is this sex buyer going to be the one that murders me or rapes me? And also suicidal ideation, dissociation. The human body and psyche are not able to sustain sex with 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 strangers a day, multiple days a week, multiple weeks a year. This causes severe physical and psychological harm. And these impacts don't discriminate based on whether someone identifies as a sex worker, a survivor, or a victim of sex trafficking.
4: So last week we were at a hearing in Washington, D.C., in front of the D.C. council members, and someone—and um, it was about a decriminalization bill, and someone who was against the bill got up and said to the council members, uh, this legislation doesn't protect black and brown girls. It protects the white men who buy them. So Christian Eduardo, every dollar pimps and traffickers make comes from the sex buyers who fuel the demand that leads to sex trafficking. Can you talk about the buyer's role?
0: Well. It's something really interesting actually happening in this room. There are no men in this room. There are a couple of men. And the first thing that we need to do is, like, break this cycle of that we are just always keeping this conversation only with victims, survivors, females, like, the, the, the ones that are always suffering and they are the ones that are always in danger um, because the people of power and privilege, they don't care that's the That's true. And on the other hand, and I feel this is something that we are all doing, like, even if we see uh, a people being prostituted on the street, we never stop to think about, like, is this person being trafficked? Is this person here by choice? So it's easier to always say, like, no, they are doing it because it's their choice, because it's their decision, they are aware of all what they're doing. and. I don't care. It's just true, and we are continue to doing this, so we need to stop that. And the other thing is that buyers, for real. they don't care. And when I was trafficked, um, nobody stopped to ask me, like, oh, do you like it? Can I do it? Are you enjoying it? And this is happening to a lot of people right now we really need to break the stigma about and around prostitution and we cannot continue to protect buyers because buyers who are the buyers men are the buyers and this is true and for real you need to invite every single one male in your life to join this conversation because if that not happen we are this is going to continue happening because they don't care they they don't have vagina. They they are not female. They are, they don't have like all these things that were for real. As a male, I'm always every single day so worried about my female friends because, and it's something that you worry every single day. And I feel that you don't related it with prostitution and trafficking, we are all against like sexual harassment, we are all against rape, we are, we are always fighting for no respect my identity, respect my rights and sexual harassment, rape, the denial of your identity are components of prostitution and trafficking so we need to stop shielding the buyers and if they want full decriminalization for real, why this panel is full of victims, activists, survivors why are they are not buyers coming here and standing that, oh, I have the right to buy the body of somebody because I have money and power and I don't care Tell me what are the reasons to buy somebody why are we why are we still doing that can you can you for real imagine just yours yourself put yourself like and if you really need housing, if you don't have food, if you are here with all legal status, if you, cannot have, if you cannot find a job, like it's not a decision to move to prostitution for real. It's never going to be a solution. And the buyers are just preying on on these people. And and the problem is that we are feeding these vulnerabilities, and we have this tendency to think that everybody in the world is like. We are all good persons, we are worried one each other, and that's not true, believe me, that's not true. I was trafficked by people of color of my own community, LGBT people of color, and trust me, we need to stop that, we need to stop protecting buyers and we need to start talking openly about this. So I hope that you join after this to our proposal for the equality model, and that we are moving forward, that we want to protect people. And if I'm talking here, it's because I don't want that nobody going through the same that I went. I walk in hell and nobody deserved that.
4: And to that point, another quote we heard at the hearing last week was by someone who uh, said that they were there by choice and were supporting a bill to decriminalize the sex trade. And they looked right at the members of city council and said, come on, you're our buyers, don't criminalize us. So if that doesn't say it. Um, So to that, Laura, how do you respond to progressive policies that embrace quote unquote sex work movements, politicians, organizations that claim that full decrim is the way
8: forward? Uh, masking full decriminalization of the sex trade is perhaps the laziest um, betrayal of women as a class uh, that I have ever seen. Um, I would, I would. Encourage people to be more strategic and to be more liberation uh, and and focus liberation in their advocacy politics. You see, the thing is, when we speak with people who have been in the trade and who justify their... um, existence in the trade, right? So we're talking uh, pro-sex work advocates. They all share the same story. I think it was uh, one of you who said, uh, there's no difference between a sex worker, a prostituted person, and a trafficked victim because they all experience the same material reality. Um, But when in speaking with people who are, according to them, uh, willingly engaged in the trade, they say, well, I do this because I need to pay my rent or I do this because I need to pay for school, or I do this because I'm a trans individual and there's, uh, you know, there's not equal protection. Equal protection in in hiring. You know what those sound like to me? That sounds like an education for all campaign, a job protection campaign, a regulate um, housing campaign. Those are campaigns that are actually progress- progressive, and actually have a vision of liberation, and actually have people's best interests at heart, as opposed to the pro men feminism that we hear being. Uh, being, you know, sp- sp- yelled at by people who want to defend this, this idea that you know uh, sex work is somehow um, feminist and it's really un- unfortunate because the sex trade has become the progressive litmus test in other words if you like google how to be woke they're going to send you a giant list of things that you need to do and one of them is accept the sex trade into your feminist policy and we are here to tell you that that is absolutely not true if we know where we are coming from and we know where we want to go and that is a world without violence without patriarchy without misogyny then we would know better than to cement women's subordinate position in society as a class that exists to be purchased for the purposes of male sexual satisfaction <laughs>
4: So, Melanie, to sum it all up, what messages would it send to men and boys about gender equality and the liberation if we decriminalize the act of purchasing women's body, especially in the age of Me Too?
7: Yeah, in the age of Me Too, that's funny. Honestly, essentially what full decriminalization is saying to the world is that women can be bought, that girls can be bought, that anybody that's marginalized um, is property, honestly. Um, Interestingly enough, there was a study done in Seattle Um, on sex buyers, and what the results showed was that the height of sex buying usually happened around 2 p.m., usually during the workday right after somebody's lunch. And I can personally attest to what that looks like considering the amount of people that have purchased my body for their lunch hour special. Um, So really, if we fully decriminalize the sex trade in its entirety, what we're really saying is that you can continue to view people as commodities and that consent can be purchased. Um, and we're also saying to to individuals that a um, dollar $1 or a hundred dollars, whatever have you, means that you're no longer oppressed. And that's an issue. That's something that we need to combat as a community and whether or not you're margi- if you're marginalized or privileged, we all have a role to play in that. So...
4: Right, and if that guy goes out and buys sex at lunchtime and comes back, how is he going to treat you as an equal
7: in, in the conversation? And how are you looked at in the, the office? I, I, I find it really um, really baffling, in my opinion, that in the age of me, too, um, somebody goes public or somebody just comes out and says, you know what, I went out last night and I was raped and then we all stand in solidarity. But I go to that same individual and say, I went out last night and I was raped and somebody put $100 on the desk. Now all of a sudden I'm a prostitute. I had consent. I had choice. I was no longer oppressed. I'm not black and brown. I'm still not poor. All of these things change. I think we really need to wake up as a community and realize that the traumas are still the same, similar to what Laura was saying. Yeah. Thanks, anyone?
4: Does anyone have a last thought they want to close on, or should we? What
2: can we do? What can we do?
4: You can spread the word. You can talk to people. When you hear sex work is work, push back on them. Explain what you've learned today. Um, when you see it in the media, when you see popular magazines whose audience are young girls talking about sex work being liberating, push back on them. Um, and then there's there's another thing you can do. Um, at, well, we we have a little handout here because the language is confusing. So when you do talk about it, we've got your your support here. Um, but you can also donate. Um, what we're what the money would go to is a survivor leadership fund because we work with these incredible survivors who do this out of the goodness of their hearts and because they don't want anyone else to experience what they've been through. But it's not their jobs; it's their extracurricular. So let's help fund them um, and and make it a you know, make their work worthwhile. So, that's what you can do. Yeah. And I just want to say um, that it can seem
1: like an unpopular thing to advocate for at first,
5: but as someone who has been protesting back and back last that thing
4: it's really not that bad yeah <laughs> yeah amy had her show protested and is still here so Ooh, thank you great. thank you for using your voice are we do what are should we do questions yeah Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. Please.
2: Uh, two things i want to say is uh first of all for me one of the things that really opened my eyes is um, sex industry is such a huge, huge industry. And the reason why it is such a huge industry is because the inventory is free. They don't pay for the inventory. If uh, If you are a drug dealer, you have to buy the drugs and sell it. You don't buy this inventory and it's replenishable. So if you think about that way, it's just so horrible. I think it's a very good way to, to think it. And so I, I, I'm glad that we can raise some money. So if you when you go downstairs, if you shop, I will give you 20% will go to your organization. And I personally will match it, match the 20%.
6: Sorry, my English is not very well but I, I'm going to try to do it. So I would like to know how can we explain to the, the community or the people whatever uh, what is uh, sex trafficking? Because I was in sex trafficking when I was talking. But I didn't realize that until my 45 years. So how can we explain then the community, uh, the sex trafficking
5: exists? I mean, I think it's really critical to know it's, it's much more pervasive than anyone thinks. I mean, again, I'm based in Washington, DC, um, and I can just give you an idea that one of the, you know, few organizations serving trafficked youth um, is currently serving 70 kids with another 23 on the wait list. And this is with all the existing laws against trafficking, against, you know, exploitation of minors, against child rape and statutory rape, um, all of these laws on the books. And we're still consistently at capacity. So, again, you know, what would happen if we were to suddenly repeal all these laws? Obviously, it would it would go up. And so um, I think you also raise an important point that most of the survivors that I've ever worked with didn't self-identify as traffic, you know, some of those realizations come later in life when, um, you know, uh, they're exposed to some other type of services, or um, you know, maybe it's through, um, a do, you know, a domestic violence scenario or some other type of scenario where they realize that exploitation. That's not uncommon, um, but I think it, it's really important to know that it, it seems like um, a, a really crazy issue, but it's much more pervasive than I think any of us really realize.
2: Well, I really want to just tell everybody that you are quite an impressive group and um, brave. Really, really takes a lot of courage to do the work you're doing and to have, um, and speak so freely about your own experiences. Alexei, convinced. Um. <laughs> That's why I wanted you here. <laughs> I got, you got me. Um, my question is uh, I'm a little confused. If we do not decriminalize, we stay exactly
7: as we are. No, I think so. That's what I need help understanding. So what we're advocating for is the equality model, and that is also known as the Nordic model, Swedish model, or partial decriminalization. So, so think I think about
4: it as the partial decriminalization.
7: Right. So I think what you're where you're getting confused is like full versus partial. So what we're advocating for is the f- the decriminalization of the person that's engaged in prostitution, i.e., myself, i.e., Christian, i.e., any of the survivors that are engaged in prostitution, but it still keeps the penalties for the perpetrators. And that's
4: whether you self-identify. That's as, the equality model. That's yeah. the equality model. Okay. And that's whether you're trafficked or you self-identify as a sex worker and you want to be there. It decriminalize it. Decriminalizes it decriminalizes the sex trade for the people who are bought and sold in prostitution
6: right. regardless.
2: So for the women and also the men who are sub, are become victims, um, talk to me about um, how we can, what we can do that will give them alternative lifestyles if they think that this is something that they have to do to put food on the table, take care of their kids, pick them up from school, it helped me understand because we are not unfortunately in some ways or very fortunately in others, we're not Scandinavian. Um, We are a very, we're a bunch of mutts, but, (laughs) uh, but, and it's different. It's just different in this crazy wild. Yeah. um, world we live in. So thank you
6: we aren't scandinavian but we can still uh, match those ideals and we actually we were a lot of us were advocating with the new york city council and the new york city council decided to allocate funding for us to create a comprehensive social service center um, which will co-locate medical services legal services um, therapeutic clinical services you know everything that you might need in one location, and we're working on um, you know bring, renovating that location right now. Now, this is a you know these centers actually were pioneered by Sweden. This is one of the key components that they said you need to implement if you're going to implement the equality model. And so we're working on bringing that for the first time to the United States right now. It'll be opening in a month, and it's called the Empower Center. Good for you all.
5: And just to quickly add to that, I think that's one of the other really critical components of the equality model and the partial decriminalization approach because it recognizes and debunks the notion of prostitution as a legitimate job. Um, Part of what you'll see with these legislative proposals that seek to just fully decriminalize the sex trade is that there are no services, right? Because why would you provide services to help people out of a legitimate profession? So I think this is why Um, You know, all of us really advocate for the equality model, which is the decriminalization of those engaged in prostitution, coupled with vital services, resources, exit strategies, uh, and as well as, you know, sealing and expunging their criminal records so that they can actually exit the industry, access housing, jobs and other opportunities. But if you legitimize prostitution as work. Um, there's no incentive to help people out of it. And it also sets a really dangerous precedent down the line in terms of, you know, are we then ready to deny poor women unemployment benefits for turning down a job opening at a brothel? So I think we have to be really, um, you know, genuine about is this a job like any other and feel confident debunking that. How close are we to...
1: Hi, congratulations to everybody. Um, Sheila Maloney from the CUNY School of Journalism. I'm from Ireland, where we have the equality model in place. And yeah, uh, okay. thanks to the, thanks to the great work of an activist whom I'm sure you've heard of, Rachel Moran. Um, I was just wondering because I was in Amsterdam recently myself, actually, and uh, I was shocked. I've been there before, but I was shocked to see that there are actually prostitution museums there now so you can actually go, yeah, it's unbelievable. And uh, you have like former prostitutes who are retired, who take you around and explain, and the whole thing is so sanitized and so normalized. And I was just wondering, how do you go about um, countering that myth of normalization?
8: Can I, I think the very, very first thing I think the very first thing that you can do is not use the term sex work right so that I think we we hear every day and all of us sort of cringe when we hear it because that term alone exists for the purposes of sanitizing the industry because when we start calling it what it is which is monetized uh, penetration right when we start calling it what it is which is um, paid rape rape that you can pay for with a credit card then people start to like you know, they take a step back, right? And um, a, a brief history on that term itself, it was created by um, people who had interests in promoting prostitution because they were gain- they were gaining economically from prostitution. In other words, literal sex traffickers created the word sex work. So that right there is the first thing that you can do because, again, once we take that term away, we can start talking about it for what it is. And the other dangerous part about that term is because um, when we start talking about labor laws and we start talking about unionizing, um, those are all workers' rights. So are we going to entertain the notion of unionizing brothels? Absolutely not, right? So that term invites a host of, uh, of things. It's like a giant can of worms that, again, we hear every single day, but have to like, peacefully (laughs) nuclear, you know, um, what's the word, neutralize so that we can continue and have an honest conversation. So that right there is one place to start.
4: All right, I think we can take one more question and then everyone will stick around and and you can have... Can
6: I just say one more thing? Yeah. There's powerful people in this room and it's an election year, so if you have a politician in your mix,
4: and local politics really matters in this yeah. of issue. Can talk about who are the sponsors? Oh, yeah. Who are,
7: here are. Who are the sponsors of this
4: decriminalization bill? Of the decriminalization bill, it's Dick Godfried, who's the um, assemblyman right here in Chelsea. Mm-hmm. It's uh, Julia Salazar, who is a young um, democratic, socialist, progressive uh, female, and uh, Jessica Ramos. Um, they're both. Uh, she's Queens. Um, she's the senator in Queens who's, who support full decriminalization. Um, you and guys so may have followed.
2: What's her? I mean, how did she say
4: that? <laughs> <Ooh>, can, <laughs> I- uh, can I can I say the Godfried quote? Please do. We, we were at a meeting with the sponsors of this bill, and Dick Godfried, who um, who who authored it, said. Now, say you have a a white Hollywood exec, and he's got a black housekeeper, and he asks her for sexual services. Um, What's the difference between that and cleaning his toilet when she doesn't want to
7: do either? I could tell them the differences.
8: (laughs) (laughs) So that was uh, Dick Gottfried, and then um, Julia, no, I'm sorry, Jessica Jessica Ramos. Ramos, My favorite quote of my entire life is... um, um, and, you know, it's going to be a bit vulgar, so pardon my French. But she said, "Buying is legal and fucking is legal, so buying fucking should be legal." That was her logic to justify a legislation. So these that are worked.
4: elected folks okay. here in New York. So think about that yeah. when you go to the polls. Yeah, what's his worst? <laughs> and. Yeah, so, so there was a, you might have followed the Queens district attorney's race um, that, that happened over the summer, um, but there was a, a candidate who ran on a pro sex work platform completely without um, really understanding the ramifications of what that would do to, to Queens and New York. So um, the, the sponsors of our bill are um, Tremaine Wright uh, in the Assembly and Liz Kruger in the Senate. Um, Two incredibly powerful women who are authoring our quality model legislation and will help us get it, hopefully, get it through. Oh, great! <laughs> so, so our bill we're authoring, we'll hope to introduce it in January um, when the session starts back up. So, um, just look out for it. Um, and again, spread the word and educate. Um, if you happen to have any personal connections to any members of the New York State Legislature, have these conversations.
1: Um, Do you need us to go to Washington? Ooh, yeah, yes, yeah, does. Um,
5: so our bill actually moved quite farther. We just had a public hearing, which is the first step in the bill being like legitimized and taken seriously last week. Um, there were uh, 170 witnesses, it went 14 hours. Um, There was actually more people in support of the legislation than against, um, but we, you know, had a formidable force. And uh, many survivors of the sex trade came from all over the country, many of whom had been exploited in Washington, D.C. And, you know, for folks that, for many years have been thinking this was a fringe movement this, you know, these bills had no p- chance of really moving forward. It's not just New York and DC, they're being introduced in a number of different states. Again, based on on the vagueness of the term sex work, people are it's appealing to people's inherent understanding that the status quo isn't working, we shouldn't be punishing women in prostitution, they are vulnerable. Um, but what they actually do is go a lot lot further and and threaten to actually fuel more harm. Um, one of the other, I think, talking points that you'll hear, and we hear a lot in d c as well, we're keeping all the laws on trafficking. Of course, we have trafficking. Everyone abhors trafficking. We're just repealing the pimping and pandering statutes. Well, the prosecutors and law enforcement in the room will tell you that's actually how the vast majority of trafficking cases are prosecuted. It's very difficult um, to bring an actual trafficking case. And so most of these cases are pled down. And so, you know, you would be removing all these laws off the books. And you know, we give the example of it's basically, you know, repealing the laws against second-degree murder, manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter, and saying, but don't worry, we still have first degree murder. You know, these are lesser penalties for trafficking. It's really important that we retain them on the books. It's the same
4: with the New York law. They say they're maintaining all aspects of the human trafficking laws, but they're repealing a statute of promoting prostitution, which is pimping. And so if you don't have that, prosecutors have no leverage for any plea agreements. Um, It it forces them to put traumatized survivors and victims on the stand to testify to their force fraud, or coercion, um, which prosecutors can't always do. So they are gutting human trafficking laws. Are
2: there
4: any um, There's a petition about the D.C. bill that yeah. we can share. We can share with your social media team, and they can get it out. Um, another thing you can do is if you're part of the media, tell this story. Because the media tells a very one-sided mm-hmm. story of uh, the white girl who went to Yale grad school and stripped to get her way through it and found it empowering. And... That's what we hear, and we don't hear this. And people need to, to know the truth. Um, so I, there are media connections in the room. Use them. And social media, too. Twitter, I mean, and all those assembly members, they're on Twitter. Dick Godfried, on Twitter.
0: <laughs> and I, I was one week ago on the DC hearing, and the truth that I was sitting there for six hours. At the beginning, I was really, mad I was it was a complex it was a lot of feelings and the truth is that I don't want that to happen here because what I was hearing over there it was like most of the testimony were about survival sex no choices no opportunities and we need to stand for this so I invite you every single one of you if you hear somebody talking about food recriminalization, like open that conversation don't be afraid like support us also we need a space to do more things like this if you if you can connect with Alexis so we are more than open to educate everyone and every single New Yorker here because we don't I personally I don't want to see what happened in DC one week ago being here like protecting buyers and perpetuating this harm and this nonsense of that it's better to by pleasure than to kill or harm a human being so please join this movement and support us in every single way that you can come with us talk with us like we are really open to educate every single one about this issue please let me just
7: let me just say because i know people i see we're trying to get out of here um, but I think it's also very important to note that you might also come across people who claim that they're a consensual sex worker, X, Y, Z, um, but also recognize that a lot of them are still in trauma, um, and I can attest personally that while I, when, when you're in trauma, especially in prostitution, a lot of times you have to find a way to justify your trauma in order to get through it, and I remember a time when I was 16 and I was in the life that I told myself that this was empowerment and liberation so that I can get through another sex buyer, so that I can continue to go to another hotel room and make sure that I can keep my sanity. So you might come across somebody who's chanting, chanting, chanting consensuality, um, but still hasn't processed their own trauma. So don't just take the narrative at face value. I love to say that it's the same story, different narrative, when it comes to both sides of the divide. Um, So just recognize, going back to those ideas of systemic oppression, that we're all suffering the same Um, traumas and abuses. One may have a pimp, one may not. Um, But the oppressions are still the same. And a lot of people haven't fully grasped um, what their trauma looks like and where it comes from. So you might come across somebody that's like pro-sex work, pro-sex work. But if you actually talk to them one-on-one and ask them about, well, their day-to-day, you'll find out that many of those people that are chanting pro-sex work have got into prostitution when they were under 18. A lot of times because they were suffering of um, suffering from the effects of systemic oppression. So just keep that in mind when you come across somebody who's holding a red umbrella and saying that this is work. This show is executive
3: produced by me, Sophia Bush and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Crillian Anatomy.